0: The things we are asked to do cannot be undone at a later date. You have to know beforehand what you can live with and
1: what will ruin your life forever and ever and ever.
0: Hello, and welcome to the first official episode of Long Stories Short. My name is Kevin Cortwright. In our introductory episode, I give a sort of mission statement as to what this podcast is about and what I wish to achieve with it. To recap, I explain that this program is about the art of storytelling. And our focus here is that of learning from those who actually are involved in telling stories. Primarily, this is about the art of fiction writing, but additionally, It's about the art of acting as actors perform the words of writers. And as I stated previously, when talented actors perform the words of talented writers, this combination is a tremendously powerful tool for storytelling, and it's a magical experience. So let's begin our journey of discovering more about the mysteries of stories. My first guest on this podcast is a truly talented, visionary, brilliant, and fiercely independent writer, director, producer. He's written and directed scores of films, created, written, and directed truly innovative and impactful television programs, as well as created, written, and directed documentaries. He's a master storyteller. And like Albert Einstein before him, he wears the same basic outfit every day of his life and dares you to say something about it. Please welcome to the program my friend, Stephen Mitchell. How are you doing, Stephen?
1: I'm doing fine. How can you argue with a... an intro like that. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> no problem.
0: And just to clarify that, Stephen, with a PH, not a V, I seem to remember you once referred to those with the V spelling as cretins and lowlifes, I think I remember you saying.
1: No, I never did. But there was a girl who once traced my name on the trunk of my car when there, there was morning dew. And right. instead of a pH, she spelt the V with a heart. <laughs> and uh, so that was the exception to the rule.
0: <laughs> yeah, you got to let that one go. Yeah.
1: That one we let go.
0: Um, So to get started, uh, you might recall, Stephen, in the movie Play Mystery for Me, there's a scene in a bar where Clint is talking to the bartender. You probably know that was played by Don Siegel. Yes. The reason that Clint did that is because this was his first time as a director, and he'd been uh, working with Siegel in the past, being directed by him, and he just wanted to have him there as sort of comfort in his first ever directed scene on his own. And that's kind of what this is for me is having you on this first show because you've interviewed me before and you've been a mentor to me for years and years and years. And now it's my turn to try to see if I can do something here. So that's why I wanted to have you first. So I appreciate you being here. Oh well, thank you. So you and I have known each other for quite a while. Uh, we're gonna talk certainly about CineParis, your company a little bit later, but just as a quick introduction to our shared history. I came to know you, I believe, um, might have been about 1995, I had moved here, ended up in Senate Paris, and was invited to uh, hear you speak, and was suitably impressed, and we've known each other ever since. Yes.
1: I think you were in my repertory company for a, a span of about 15 years, if memory serves.
0: That's about right. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'll get a little basic biographical information. Tell us about your youth. Uh, you don't have to go on too much, but I'm sure the listeners would be very interested in learning a little bit about you yourself.
1: Well, I, I grew up in Brentwood where all my, I'm exaggerating a little bit when I say all, but most of my neighbors were in the film business or the movie business. Uh, my friends' parents were stars of TV and movies and uh, for example, if you remember the movie All About Eve, um Hugh Marlowe, who played the writer, was my best friend's dad. Mm. The woman who played Eve bought our family home when we moved out of Brentwood. And she moved in uh into our house not too far from where uh Paul Revere Junior High School is, in fact. Okay. And uh, you know, uh, James Whitmore's son sat in front of me and couple of my classes, and I used to see uh, Richard, uh, oh Lord, I'm forgetting his name, Paladin, uh, have gun will travel. Okay. Uh, he would drive by in his Rolls Royce, or I'd see uh, Gregory Peck up at the country mart. So it was, it was a rarefied atmosphere, although I just took it for granted. I didn't think that it was anything out of the ordinary. Right. And some years later, many years later, in fact, uh, a friend of the family married a TV director by the name of Paul Stanley. And Paul became a mentor of mine. He'd said, anytime I'm shooting, you can, you're welcome to be on the set. And he did a lot of episodic TV, did a lot of the Mission Impossible TV episodes, uh, the, the ones with Peter Graves and uh, that cast. And he did pretty much, if it was on TV at that time, he did it. So I visited a lot of sets. And saw, met different actors like Barry Sullivan and Glenn Ford. And I mean, it, it was, for me, an extraordinary time. But when I was on these sets, and given that the crew knew I was a friend of the director's, and just a kid, actually, uh, they all talked to me. I'd, I'd go up to the sound cart, and the sound man would give me a headset, and he'd plug the jack in so I could hear what he's hearing coming through the headsets from the from the mic. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when Peter Graves was going through the Mission Impossible team to decide who he wanted for this episode, and he'd the, all the photos were wrapped in plastic laminate and he dropped them on the table. I want to tell you through the earphones, that sounded like a gunshot. Really? That's how that's how much it amplified. But it was a fantastic experience. And uh, uh, how it came to me or why it came to me, I don't know, but I've been dealt some very good uh, cards in my life.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. By the way, the Richard you were trying to remember, is that Richard Boone?
1: Yes. Sorry, I couldn't remember his name because oh. I was a big fan of his. And in fact, uh, the, the lady who married Paul Stanley, Jacqueline Stanley, uh, before they were married, she worked on one of Richard Boone's shows, a TV anthology. Okay. and uh, they were very often going up to Wildwood to, to shoot uh, some of the episodes.
0: That's a pretty rarefied way to grow up. It's, it sounds like it was fascinating. Now, with that background, uh, my next question was going to be about your first memories of stories. Um, I don't know if you had any where stories just affected you when you were even younger than that, or if it was just always part of what you've already described and grew up to love stories at that point.
1: Well, I think I grew up Not thinking of them as stories, but as movies. Okay. And I would I would go see a movie, oh gosh, time after time after time. In fact, even today I say if a if a film isn't worth looking at 30 times, it's not worth looking at once. Mm. And each time I see Lawrence of Arabia, different nuances, different, I'll draw different inferences. You know, the difference between an implication and inference is an inference. Is something you bring from it. And I think that as I grew up and grew older and expanded my awareness, my experiences, I was able to get more from the film that may or may not even been uh, intended by the authors or by David Lane. Yeah. But if it's, if it's a film that's true to its content and true to its theme, you can derive that benefit time after time in a different way that makes it worth revisiting. Even by the time um, 1965 maybe came around, I'd seen The Great Escape 15 times.
0: And that's amazing considering back then you actually had to go to the theater to do it, not like today.
1: There was no home video, that's right. That's right,
0: yeah. that, That shows a real love of something when you invest that much. Well, with that kind of a background and um, and having that much opportunity around studios and so forth, then let's look at what brought you into your desire to move into that field. How did you go about working your way towards the business in that regard?
1: Well, I think when I was um, hanging out with Paul on the set, by that time it was a foregone conclusion. I mean, I think everyone that knew me understood that I was going to become a filmmaker. It was... Very clear, a foregone conclusion for reasons I can't even account for. But there it was. And I think my first step, of course, was being on the set with Paul and soaking everything up like a sponge. One day I asked him, what's the best preparation for being a director? And he said, live a full life. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Not I don't know how to apply it particularly, although that's exactly what I went out and did but it's probably the best advice he ever gave me. I went out and lived my life as though I were in a movie for at least a couple of decades and got away with things that, you know, I, I, let's not say I got away with them, but let's say I lived adventures that any one of those adventures would make an amazing book. And yet there I was living it. And uh, seeing a lot of movies and talking to people who'd made movies, I came to understand that reading autobiographies by film directors was very valuable because you learn things you don't learn from biographies written about the same director by someone else. True. So if it's a if it's a book written by a director, I read it, whether it's well, regardless, as as recently as William Friedkin going back to John Houston, and it, I just soaked it all up.
0: Yeah, I know you and I had the privilege of going to see Freakin give a lecture uh, and promoting his book. That well, was a couple, three years ago, wasn't it? How, however long it
1: was. I, I hate to tell you, but it was probably five to six years ago. <laughs> oh, my God.
0: Oh, man. Well, you know, uh, I'm going to draw back to something you said earlier, just briefly, and then bring us right back. You had made reference to um, wanting to see films that you want to see again and again because there's always something new in there. And it made me think about, you know, I guess that's the case with all great art. As a lover of music and musician myself, music is the same way for me. It's the kind of music that I can go back to and I can listen to the same piece over and over and over and constantly hear something new. And that's got a lasting effect on me. So I can see the same thing with what you're saying about films. And films probably have even more than that because it's a visual medium on top of what you hear and so on and so forth. So that's fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I think it's a concept that runs through all of the arts. Because you you can look at a painting and go back and look at it and maybe see a mood or an inference you can take away that hadn't occurred to you previously yeah. and certainly you know i listen to uh Herb von kerian as my favorite composer, uh uh director and i listen to his symphonies that he conducts uh, whether it's beethoven or uh albanoni or and there's such nuance and there's such finesse and such an eloquence of voice coming from the music that I can listen over and over. Well, I do. It's on my it's on my iPhone. And uh, there's a reason there's certain pieces of music or certain plays or certain books that you can go back to. For example, my favorite book I was asked about recently is not one book, but a combination of three books written by John le Carré. It's commonly referred to as the Carla Trilogy. Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy, The Honorable Schoolboy, and Smiley's People. And though many people try to uh, diminish his writing by categorizing it as spy fiction, it's as final literature as you're going to find anywhere.
0: You can go back to it again and again. You can get more and more nuance, more and more things you might not have noticed.
1: And I do, and it moves me. The same way when, when Smiley goes to visit Connie in Tinker Tailor or later in Smiley's People, because what we're seeing is a character in Connie who had one life to give and one life to live. And it was wrenched from her by people who were devious and had too much to hide. And there's nothing in that book that isn't true today.
0: Yeah. And, and there you're just reinforcing the theme of this podcast about the power of story. Yeah. Now, you also mentioned the amazing advice you got about becoming a director is to live life. And I know a bit about the life you've lived, especially through the se- 70s. That You uh, did some fascinating things. One thing that's always amazed me about you, Stephen, is that and I don't say this as any kind of insult, I say this as an amazing reality, you've never had a basic job. You've never had a day job. You've made your living in amazing ways and never had to do a nine-to-five like I always have and still do. It's always fascinating me. And I know that in the 70s, you sold cars. You would buy and sell cars, like get them from Europe and sell them in the States. Is that accurate?
1: Yes, I would go to England and Italy and I'd buy Bentleys and Maseratis and Ferraris and drive them over there and enjoy them, live the high life while I was there, and then call the shippers. They pick them up, they go on the boat, and 30 days later, they're in Long Beach, and then I would sell them. And then while I was waiting for them to come, I'd buy and sell. I'd turn over Corvettes because I like driving the Corvettes, but I also turned over Volkswagens. I'd buy a Volkswagen for like, well, I don't know if this makes any sense today, but back in the seventies, you could go in the recycler and buy a, a Volkswagen for as little as $350, $400. And I'd sell it for $200 more. And that gave me pocket money, you know, to get me through the week. Yeah. And the Corvettes I'd sell for several times that in terms of profit. And then the Maseratis or the Bentleys would get here, and I'd have fun driving them and ultimately turn them over for premium prices. So it was like having a job, but it certainly wasn't a job.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, I've heard about this for all the years I've known you, and I've always marveled at it. And I think about myself delivering pizzas and getting bit by dogs trying to make a living, and I think about what you did. I just It just fascinates me. So let's now talk about your first feature film as a writer-director. That was done in Paris, France, correct?
1: In Paris, in French, strangely enough, I'd seen a film called A Man and a Woman Mm -hmm. back in 65. I was still just a kid. 10 years go by and I'm living this fast life, which is the best way I can put it, and nothing had happened. And then another Lelouch film called, in French it was Tout en Vie, but in 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 America it was, the title was And Now My Love. And it was about a guy kind of resembled me. He changed his ways, became a filmmaker. I just dropped everything and went to France for two weeks to reconnoiter, to see what's going on over there. And once I was running out of the two weeks, I recognized there's no way I'm going home. I cashed in my return ticket and stayed, and I ended up living there for two years. Uh, I made my first film, which was Montmartre. It was sort of a faux documentary a of Woody Allen and Take the Money and Run. And uh, it was about a, a, a French painter, artist who painted on the Place du Tertre in Montmartre. And uh, he was a whimsical, funny kind of a character. So that's where I started. I went on to do a TV pilot because I asked my agent, what can I do over here that you can sell over there? And she said, well, get the rights to the Crazy Horse Saloon, which I did. And while I was at it, I made a TV pilot called The French Chef with a French movie star named Philippe Leotard. American audiences would know him best probably as the guy who comes through the windshield of a truck in uh, The French Connection 2 as it crashes to a halt. He was quite an actor and uh, at that point I came home expecting us to stay six weeks and people started giving money to make movies and uh, that kept me in Los Angeles. Now you you didn't
0: speak a word of French basically when you went over there to um, to make your first film so you had to you just learned it correct
1: yeah I was I was fluent for business meetings within two months that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. just kicked it but I did the same thing earlier in Italy when I'd go buy Ferraris I picked up Italian very quickly yeah. I'm just glad I I didn't, you know, fall in love with Croatian films because I'd have had to learn God knows what. And I don't know if I'd had a knack for that or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, now you've gone to France. You said now you're back in L.A. People are giving you money for films. We're going to be going through some of those films momentarily. But it was not too long after that, if I have the chronology correct, and you can correct me, that you created your own company, CineParis. Could you tell us about that, how and why?
1: Well, yeah, actually, I created it in Paris because cinema is Cine, sure. For cinema is what I was. That was my activity, and Paris was where I was. So, Cine Paris defined the whole thing. When I came back to Los Angeles, the name Cine Paris was more definitive of me than it was of anything going on. Other than that, if you looked at any of my films, they have a very strong French influence in terms of visuals. Editing rhythms and perhaps even subject matter. Okay. They just they just happen to be in English.
0: Now we already discussed, forgive me, I am so terrible at at, at speaking French. The first film was called What Again?
1: Montmartre. Okay. Or in English, Montmartre.
0: Got it. That one was done in France. You came back to the States. Uh, You created Cine Paris while you were in France, and you came back to the States. And you created that, uh, from what I understand, because uh, you found that you write uh, a movie, and there was frequently just the, the quality of the acting wasn't up to par and so forth, and you just wanted to have some more control over that. Is that accurate? You wanted to create a repertory company to train actors and so forth in order to be able to work within your films and be able to do their own things uh, with the kind of quality you were looking for.
1: Well, that's true. I, I, I made a film and I put together a flyer after it was, compl- I'm doing the same thing today even, but it, uh, I, I made this movie and I sent out a flyer to all of the film distributors, producers, reps. They, in those days, there was a database published, uh, I think, quarterly, maybe biannually, I forget, called the Hollywood Creative Directory. And there'd be maybe 1,500 distribution companies listed. I'd start sending out flyers advertising the film, and they'd want to see it and talk to me about it. And um, right away, I'm getting comments like, "We love the title, we love the story, the love the direction, but the actors suck." See, they had no reason to be nice about it. They just said it like they wanted to say it. I said we'd be happy to buy your films if you had better actors. Well, I looked at the situation, and I wasn't taking. I was taking the best actors I could get. They'd all been to Stella Adler or to to uh, um, the Meisner or you know, all of the better acting workshops in Los Angeles, but that didn't translate into result. And either the techniques that they were teaching weren't effective, or these people hadn't studied the technique well enough. So as a survival mechanism, like at one point in the mid eighties, Jaguar was taken over by a, I think John Egan, I believe was the new head. And he says, we got to get better electrics because these Lucas electrics are killing us. Hmm. You know, the, 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 the electrics keep going out on these Jaguars and the reliability is out the out the bottom. As a quality control measure, he he upgraded the electrics. Well, that's what I did. And I came up with a technique that I thought would make any actor look like a seasoned actor within six weeks. And what I did is I worked backwards because I'd seen so many movies with such great acting, I just created a technique that made the actors look like that. Okay. None of of this working with what you feel. I didn't want the actors to feel anything. I wanted them to make the audience feel everything. Mm. And so the subjective, I'm in the mood, I'm in the moment, that didn't work for me and it wasn't working for our product. So I said, think of a performer on stage, whether it's a ballerina or a stripper. They want to make the audience feel a certain thing. The ballerina wants to convey the idea of lightness of being and gracefulness, even though she may be bleeding into her toe shoes because it's kind of brutal dancing on those things. What she's feeling is not what she's selling to the audience. The same could be said for a stripper for other reasons. But in acting, if you understand... You get no points for what you feel, but you get a lot of points for what you make the audience feel. You have conceptually an understanding of what my action-reaction technique is all about. Now, it's broken out into many different parts. And one of the one of the most essential are interstitial reactions that are designed to resonate the different groups within an audience because there is no one monolithic audience you perform to any audience you're going to get in front of whether it's an audition where you have three people sitting there or whether it's a stage play with 25 or whether it's on the silver screen with you know hundreds of people watching or even millions those audience groups are made up of constituent groups and you have to resonate each and every one of them or you're not growing your fan base amazing so it's a very, it, it it is complex but like mathematics, we start with one and one equals two, and then you get to subtraction and multiplication and division and then algebra and then you build on it until you can be at a fairly sophisticated level and think nothing of it because that's the way you think now.
0: Yeah. So you created this action-reaction technique and started training actors to be able to master this and then use them to populate your productions.
1: Yes. Yes it's grown over the years i'm still adding elements and uh, if someone just wants to get the basics they can go to amazon and buy action reaction
0: so keep that in mind stephen has a, a couple uh, you have a handful of books out on the market they're all available on amazon correct yes and so for those interested in that side of it the acting and stephen's particular approach to that and how he trains actors. The book is called Action Reaction, which is your registered approach to acting training.
1: It is. And I'll tell you this, although most people think of it as acting, you may recall that action reaction, that concept comes into play in editing in writing, even in directing. And I just don't make as big a deal because I always had more actors than I had directors. And the reason I developed directors was we had, you know, at any given time, close to 100 actors in the repertory Company. And I needed other directors to be able to direct them uh, capably and effectively.
0: And with that in mind, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about some of your films. Before we do, sticking with cinepairs for a moment, you kind of modeled your approach in of Paris and what you were training your writers, your directors, producers, and so forth on the old Hollywood uh, system in its golden age. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it worked quite nicely. And when it was dismantled, it wasn't because the system didn't work. It was because the federal government intervened and said they were operating monopoly and they had to break it apart. But the system worked beautifully.
0: So in simple terms, what was that system that worked so well?
1: Bring in actors, train them in as many aspects of life as you can, following Paul Stanley's uh, advice to me. I had them reading Vanity Fair magazine because that taught them about things going on in life that deals with the top of each pyramid in different industries. I thought they should know because when you go on a location with a director, it's nice to have something to talk about other than how am I doing in the part. So we taught them many, it was like a finishing school. And on top of that, we branded them, which is to say, I would look at an actor and get a sense of how best could I use this actor? What without recasting the mold would give me the best result with this personality, his look or her style of speaking. And as you look at all the great stars in Hollywood, anybody that's had a career in Hollywood has been branded, whether they know it or not. It's the way people refer to you and think of you, and it's not typecasting. Typecasting is, is for background players. Typecasting is lawyer types, mom types, uh, street hooligan types. It's very simple, and it's for background. The closer you move to the above-the-line uh, acting roles, they want it branded, and if you look at Jack Nicholson. He's been playing the same brand since 1968. But what he'll do is take elements of the brand and mix them up and change the proportion, so that Easy Rider and A Few Good Men and and uh, Witches of Eastwood, It's all Jack. It's all the brand, but he's changed up the the ratio of the ingredients. So he's familiar. And we like him, and we we get what we're expecting, but he's giving you something new in the in the combination of ingredients each time.
0: So I remember you mentioning that back in the '80s when they were making um, Beverly Hills Cop, I remember you used to to share this with us. That if I remember correctly, that was originally supposed to go to Stallone, and of course that would have been a certain type of movie. It might have been a perfectly fine movie, but when it ended up going to Eddie Murphy. He brought in his, as you call it, brand. He brought in his special thing that he does, and it became what it
1: became. It did. I, I was talking about that movie with uh, another mentor of mine who has since passed on as well. His name was Robert Leckie, and he was part of the group that produced The stunt man and Somebody Killed Her Husband, and When You're Coming Back, Red Rider. He was part of the Melvin Simon group. And Melvin Simon got into Hollywood, but he was before that. Uh, One of the largest constructors of of shopping malls in the United States, I believe. Anyway, Robert said after seeing Beverly Hills Cop for the first time, he said he knew it was going to be a hit. The moment he saw that scene where Eddie goes in and rousts the whole bar. Yes. And just does a head trip. He says, anytime you've got a showstopper scene like that in a movie, you know it's going to be a hit. And of course, he was right. He didn't tell me that after it was a hit. It was still early days. Nobody knew what it was gonna be. Yeah. That was his take on it. And it correlates to a degree with something someone else said about uh, somebody at Buddha West. That Buddha West was an annex for Buddha Records back in the 70s. Buddha Records had uh, Aretha Franklin and other people and they had a, an outstation up on the Sunset Strip. Someone says, you can always tell what's going to be a hit in music because you either love it immediately or you hate it immediately. Hmm. If it's just a nice little song that you know doesn't bother you and uh, it's not gonna go anywhere because it's not impinging on you. And not too long after that, I'm listening to uh, that song, Even the, Even the Dolphins Make Me Weep, or what was that song? Booty and the Blowfish. <laughs> yes. Boy, did that irritate the hell out of me when I started hearing that. But like 10 days later, I'm humming along with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll do that. They'll sneak up on you like that.
1: Yeah, but that's that's how you know it's a hit. If you hate it, it's gonna be a hit. <laughs> well, doesn't but, mean you have to like it, it just means you want to invest in it if you can. Right.
0: Now, um, you were using the term branding. Now, you used to use the term signature in Senate Paris. Now, you saw those as basically synonymous, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I, I I was I started using the term signature in France. In French, they say le griffe, which is basically the mark of, uh, an animal would leave on you if it if it mauled you. You know, you'd see the claws, however many there are, yeah. uh, scraped across your face. So I like that the the griffe, and that's what I started with in France. But when I came here, that didn't make any sense. I started using signature for a while. Because branding didn't have any connotation, people hadn't started instructing that. Mm-hmm. And then I converted to branding, I I don't even know why, but uh, it made sense to people and uh, still does.
0: Another element of CineParis that I always found so fascinating is, it, it, oh, just the overall element of it is that it, it was very comprehensive for your your clients. It included a tremendous amount of uh, training on how to market themselves.
1: Right. Well, here's the thing. If you teach someone to act, it does them no good unless you teach them how to get to act. Yeah. I knew how to direct long before I directed. Mm -hmm. What I didn't have at the time was the pathway to directing. And so much in Hollywood, whether you're a writer, actor, director, most of the Hollywood advice given to newcomers is designed to shut you out of a career. That sounds awfully cynical, I know. But the fact is, that advice is given for the convenience of the advice giver and not for the advice receiver. What What's the biggest problem Hollywood has? Too many people, too many newcomers wanting in. They want to keep it for the people that are already there.
0: Yeah, There's people coming in off the bus every single day.
1: Yeah, so that give you advice that'll take you out into the parking lot when you want to be on the 50-yard line taking snaps from center and throwing long spirals down the sideline. Yeah. The first thing I saw from an actor's point of view is they're all going to the casting director, which is just wonderful, unless you really want to have a career. <laughs> and if you really want to have a career, you have to ask yourself, who's the public for you? Who hires actors? Well, it isn't casting directors. Their job is to say no 27 times out of 30.
0: They basically weed people out uh, on behalf of those who are above them, correct?
1: That's right. To say that they're looking for talent is to do justice to one little part of their function. Mm-hmm. The majority of their time is saying no, 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 no. They don't even call you in, they're scanning the photographs, they're a filter. So if that's the case, and think about it for a while, don't just assume it's so because I say so. Who does hire actors? Well, the producer hires the bankable lead because without a bankable lead, there's not going to be a movie. Mm -hmm. So if he can come in and say, I got Jack Nicholson for my next movie, everybody sits up, takes notice, studios give you money, the distributors sign you on, countries right and left start forking over money to have the rights to your movie. So he took care of the bank of a lead, but the director then takes care of everybody else. So my question to an actor is how many film directors know about your work as an actor? The answer to that question tells me if you're working or not. Mm -hmm. Or if you say, well, I don't know any directors, but I know 30 casting directors, then what I know about you is you're doing extra work or background roles, under fives, they call them. Mm So that's using logic and critical thought on the industry and figuring out how does this actually work as opposed to how I'm being told that it works. Right. Then you get into writing, you know, because this is about writers, let's make that transition for a minute. Writing is even harder than getting to be an actor because writing typically, we like to think of it anyway, that there's only one writer per project. Well, we know that's not true, and there can be several, There can be as many as 10 screenplay versions by as many different writers. Let's assume that you're a writer, and you're writing a scene, and you've got two guys sitting at 3 o'clock in the morning in the casino coffee shop in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there with a blank page, and, and the first thing you think is, what would he say to his friend? And that's the worst question in the world you can ask yourself. Okay. Because the right question is, what wouldn't he say to his friend? And have him say that. Okay. Because if you're starting off automatically with what he would say, then everybody knows that's what he would say. And you're being predictable. And we kind of know what path you're going down with the opening line of dialogue. Yeah. I'm doing a new movie right now, and, and I was rehearsing with the actors, which I never used to do. But these days I make movies. I'm, I'm in Ireland, so I communicate with my actors via Skype connection, as we're doing right now. I dictate the script to them, and they go over it, and we rehearse it. Then on the day we shoot on the location, I light up the Skype. I can see the camera angle. I say, no, bring the camera down, pan left, you know, uh, zoom in a bit. And I can, I can, it's just though I'm right there directing the scene. And um, you could say it's like I'm directing in the booth, except in this case, the booth is 5,000 miles away. Right. Anyway, so we're doing a scene. And in this scene, a woman's asleep in her bed and We fade up from black on a guy hovering over her who looks like the guy from extremities. He's wound tight. He's sweating like he's been on uppers for a week. And you can see the guy is psychotic and ready to do bad things. She's asleep. He's hovering over her. What would he say? I don't care what he would say, but here's what he does say. At the top of the lungs, he screams, where's Eddie? Not what you're expecting.
0: Yeah, not at all. Not what
1: she's expecting. Now, what do we expect from her? We expect her to be shocked and scared and frightened. Is that what we give you? No. We see her open her eyes and yawn, and she says to him in the nicest way possible, Eddie told me to tell you that he left three years before I got here.
0: Mm.
1: Now the guy doesn't know what to think. And neither does the audience. Other than that, we've defined two characters. One's a maniac, and the other, first thing in the morning, waking up to a maniac, is already thinking rings around him. Right. We've established who we're dealing with. No more than one line each. We've set the tone for the whole movie. Yeah. In other words, what I've said to everybody is, you're going to have to pay attention because you're not going to relax and pick up on the visual cues Uh like you would a movie you've seen 30 times before. Exactly.
0: Now, I'm gonna definitely come back to you also when it comes to your approach to writing in a minute. Before we move on to your uh, the, more of your films, you talked about signature, branding, just so people get a really interesting idea of what you described there. if I, I'm gonna mention a couple of three names of very well-known actors and have you just describe in your words what their brand or signature is, if I was to say, well, you've mentioned him a couple times, Jack Nicholson.
1: Well, Jack is insubordinate, uh, deliciously so, mischievous. One thing I like about him is he always does the unexpected. Mm. One of my dictates is an audience will always remember what it didn't expect to see. And Jack gives us that in a, an abundance. Hopefully, I'm giving you that in that opening scene of this movie I'm doing, 101 to the 405
0: yeah exactly right when you said that about jack that's what i thought is what you were just describing in your movie what about someone like clint eastwood
1: well clint is always antagonistic and always slow to react unless he needs to be fast uh he gives everybody trouble and if you remember and this goes way back to what was 67 68 or was it possibly 69 dirty harry uh when he's given a new partner and he says, I don't, I don't work with him and calls him a spick, which, you know, obviously our heroes don't call people spicks.
0: No, we don't like that.
1: No, but, but one of the other characters said, oh, he's gives, he calls them mix. And, it, you know, he, he did the whole litany of, 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 uh, of slurs that, that comes forth from Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. So we just had to accept it. But the fact is, when we saw that that Latino partner got shot up, he visits him in the hospital and he says, don't think less of yourself because you're you're not wanting to come back. You know, this isn't for everybody and it needn't be for you. Yeah. So what that conveyed, that interstitial reaction, if you will, the change up, was that, yes, this tough, bluff, antagonistic front he puts on is as true as it's true, but it also serves to cover up a softer, more sympathetic side that we might not have suspected existed in the character. So just as Clint Eastwood showed the nicer side to that gruff manner, so did Tony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, who's playing the worst, most despicable person in the world. And yet his role in the movie was to play her guardian angel. Mm. And he did it so effectively, he only had 15 minutes screen time in the whole movie. And he's all I can remember about the film.
0: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So with Jack, with Clint, the big thing you're describing is something that comes from them as people and something they bring to their roles, and it goes from role to role. So the last one I'll mention, I know someone that's uh, very important to you, and that's Steve McQueen.
1: Well, Steve, very interestingly enough, if you look, I have... (laughs) I happened to see some very early clips and I don't even know where I found them today, but they were before he found his brand Mm -hmm. and he was using a New York accent like he'd been to the actor's studio and was putting that brand on. Didn't fit him at all, but he became number one at the box office for almost his entire career when he did find his brand. And he was playing a guy who spoke with actions and reactions and had very little dialogue. He was a tough guy for sure, but he made sure to show a little vulnerability in each of his films. In the famous chess scene with Faye Dunaway and Thomas Crown, she catches him looking at her playing with a chess piece, smiling, which he's doing in a flirtatious fashion, but then she gives him a look to say, "I wasn't really doing that," and he catches himself, like, "Oh, I've been caught." A little bit of vulnerability that you don't see from, say, a Steven Seagal, for example. Right. In In the getaway, he's just shot the hell out of a squad car with a double with a with a shotgun. And Ali McGraw gets into the car, and he's about to get in the back seat of the car, and they're going to make their getaway, and she inadvertently hits the gas and the car, you know, does a burnout going in reverse and knocks Steve on his ass. When do you see that in a movie with a tough guy hero? You don't. Right. But he put that little awkwardness in there. And then in bullet, he's in the nightclub scene and that great rock combo is playing with a flute and The waitress reaches across him to take a menu, and it comes right past him, and he jerks his head back as though he just about got a paper cut. He puts his hand up to his nose, and then he pulls his hand up to reassure her, no, I'm fine. These little vulnerabilities played well against the tough guy, and I thought were endearing. And it happens too often in too many of his films for it to be anything other than by intent.
0: I would think. Yeah. It's fascinating being able to, to evaluate these people and see what they're bringing. That's so unique. I mean, I wish we had more time. We could talk about Sean Connery. We could go all the way back to all the classics of the fifties and forties. And before, uh, we haven't had have the time, but it's fascinating to see that and how you brought that into Senate Paris and pass it on to those who you were training then. And now, well, with all of that understood, um, I'm gonna mention some film titles from your resume of work. Uh, I believe all these were from the 1980s and you can feel free to share anything you'd like about them. We'll keep it brief, but um, starting with fait to Complete. Great title, by the way.
1: Thank you, to Complete. I'd been back for, well, three years maybe from France and um, I like to go out of town when I make a movie in those days, especially. And I wanted to go to uh, Baja, California, Ensenada, in fact, because I'd been going to Baja for family vacation since I was nine or 10 years old and then carried on the tradition as an adult. And there was a place just north of uh, Ensenada called Quintas Papagayos, And they were, it was like a motel where you rent a house instead of a of a room. And they had... Uh, a number of these houses lining the front, the beachfront, and then some of them back into the enclave. But uh, I wanted to go shoot down there. And so I, I did, but the week before I'm supposed to go, the French actor who was starring in the movie decided he couldn't go there Mm. because he was afraid he might not get back into the country. Okay. So there's a story there. And Suddenly I'm stuck for a leading man. I had to look all all around and do a casting notice and find somebody to play the lead, and I couldn't find anybody. So uh, it was just easier to do it myself. So when we went down to Mexico, I created a character that existed only in flashback that gave context to the actions of my French hero up in Los Angeles. And we shot in L.A., and in Palm Springs for the most part. But this gave impetus and context to all of the present time actions. And I I have never been so profoundly tired making a movie as I was making that movie because I was getting up early for makeup call then directing the movie. And I mean, then after everybody's cut and I'm doing other prep for the next day uh, exhausting. <laughs> it was a great deal of fun, but but completely exhausting. Yes.
0: Yeah. Next, you had Terminal Velocity, another great title.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, ten years later, Buena Vista took it for a, was it a Charlie Sheen film? Yeah. And uh, but mine was um, the the <laughs> the actual star of the movie was a Corvette I got from my friend Matthew Edinger. It was a real hot. Corvette, and the most powerful engine you could get in a Corvette of that era. And uh, it was a convertible. And we took it out into the desert and introduced all these different characters. Um, basically, it was one of those instances where we see a robbery take place and a gangster's wife is kidnapped. And then the rest of the movie is about finding out who did what to whom and where it all began. And, and as was my habit in those days, I went out to, uh, uh, El Mirage, which is a dry lake bed near, uh, uh, Victorville. You'd recognize it in a minute. It's been in so many car commercials and commercials of different sorts. But if you see this sunbaked desert with cracks in the, in the sand Mm -hmm. hard, that's El Mirage. And that's where we went namely because I could make the movie with very few innocent bystanders to have to contend with right and it was great but we ended up in las vegas because i liked having las vegas on the on the poster and 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 in the storyline and we'd end up going to las vegas and generally they'd compass rooms or suites as the case may be and it, it was it was good visuals for the trailer and for the poster
0: I'm going to skip over just a couple so I can cherry pick a little bit. Uh, Bleeder and Bates.
1: I got the best compliment I've ever gotten for one of my movies, I have to say, from Alan Garfield who was went for a time under the name Alan Gorwitz, but Alan, he was Alan Garfield, and Alan Gorwitz, and then Alan Garfield again. You saw him in The Stuntman as the writer. Mm. You saw him in Vim Vendor's State of Things. He's been in tons of movies he came to the premiere which we held at uh, the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard and after the screening he came up to me and he says this reminds me so much of vim Bender's work mm. and i thought well i'll i'll take that to the bank yeah thank you thank you very much but it was it was a story about a journeyman detective no glamour just a guy that does his job and unfortunately he ends up on a homicide that was committed by somebody that doesn't want him to find out, someone in the department who can control things, very much like what we're seeing play out in the news today on a political level. But he suddenly was coming under vicious attacks. All these women decided he'd raped them. They had a board of inquiry. It was The slow but surely accusations following by, we're going to get rid of this guy before he gets to the truth. Not that anybody knew what the truth was. Only one guy did. But the people that he was coercing to do these things were doing it because they were being coerced to do these things. Mm -hmm. One line that you could apply to almost all of my movies in a way, I suppose, was a line that came from Chinatown in which John Huston is talking to Jack Nicholson at lunch in, in Santa Catalina. And I'll, I'll throw in an extra word in there just because I like it. But he says, you may think you know what's going on, Mr. Gitz, but believe me, you don't. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't say Mr. Gitz, but I think it sounds better as a quote to have him mispronounce the name, which he was wont to do anyway. Yeah. But. My feeling is if if the audience thinks they know what's going on and that's what's going on, you're not telling a story anymore. They are ahead of you or think they are, yeah. If they don't know what's going on, then you're you're telling a proper story.
0: keeping them in suspense, keeping in the mystery going, not knowing exactly where this is headed.
1: yeah, in literary terms, it's called a page turner, right. But if if the audience thinks they know what's going on, and heaven help you, that they do know what's going on, your story is is done and over with.
0: That's true. You had
1: two more that I'll mention from the '80s. Dead right. Dead right. <laughs> Dead right was funded by an Italian distributor. They didn't see a script. They saw part of a script. But I'm in. I'm in. At a film market, and I'm in there. I went into their suite just to sit down and rest. And then I'm now I'm rested because we were walking all over the place. I think okay, now we'll go. I was making small talk with their and his employees. And as I'm leaving, he walks in. Now I think oh oh now I gotta have something to say. So we get to talking, and I said I could make a movie for this much money, and I I lowballed him. He says, what would it look like? I says, well come with me. So we go down, and as it happened my rep was right down the hall from his suite. So we walked down the hallway, went into to my rep's suite, pulled out the cassette of my movie, showed him the opening, fast forwarded to the middle, showed him about seven minutes in the middle, fast forwarded to the end. And he said, okay, what movie are you gonna make? I said, dead right. But if you liked what you just saw, it's gonna be exactly the same, more or the same.
0: Mm.
1: He had to get his mind around that a little bit, and then he said, "Okay." He said, "Come to my office." He had an office in Studio City. He said, "Come to my office Monday, or Tuesday, or whenever it is." Got back, and we'll we'll do the deal. So basically, I made a deal to make a movie based on a few uh, a few minutes of looking at my last film, having a good title, having. <laughs> having the chutzpah to, to pitch it that way. Right. <laughs> but having lived a full life, I'd, I'd done worse. And uh, ultimately he said, well, show me some scenes anyway. So I wrote a partial script, which he liked. And off we went and made the movie. We made the movie in 15 days, cut it in 11, put it on an airplane immediately to the MeFed Festival in Milan, and it sold in 30 countries around the world.
0: Now, that's how you get a film done.
1: <laughs> that's, that's, the the, that's the way you do it.
0: Yeah. Now, I want to bring in a couple of quick things about that before we mention your uh, uh, one more film, then we'll move on to your TV works. Cineparis, Paris, of course, was all a part of this. And so you would utilize some of your actors within the Repertory Company in these films. Is that true?
1: Always. Very seldom have I used an actor that wasn't in the rep company. And unfortunately, one of those was in dead right because the director director the distributor insisted on having a tall dark and handsome on the poster okay and i didn't have a tall dark and handsome at the time so i had to go outside the company to find one but other than that everybody you see in one of those movies came from the rep company that's amazing
0: and along with that from the writing side of things you've rarely ever written out an entire screenplay you dictate dialogue to your actors that time
1: with dead right came the closest
0: okay but as a general rule you would you would dictate the dialogue that's been germinating in your mind or whatever as you are about to shoot the scenes and the actors having been trained by you or whoever was training them within the company would then go over it get it together yes
1: see i already knew who they were i i'd worked with them on the tv shows I knew what they could do, I knew what they could do well. I knew what I could do with them. So we'd be out in the desert and I'd say, okay, you, you, you and you are in this scene. And then I'd dictate the scene, they'd rehearse it until they were ready. They'd bring it to me, I might tweak it, give them a note and then we'd shoot it. And it was as simple as that. At the end of the production to create a dialogue list for the uh, for the distributors that bought, because they all want a dialogue list. We'd compile all those notes, or at a, at a certain point, I started having a designated transcriber, and uh, that would be converted to typing in those days. No computers at that point, but that gave us our dialogue list to supply to uh, the distributors. And when I do a scene, I always knew if it was first, second, or third act for which I was writing, because as you know, each of those acts have different dynamics and requirements.
0: And of course they aren't shot chronologically necessarily, very rarely. Never. Yeah. It was always astonishing to me that you would be able to do that with a feature film for Crying Out Loud. You got people invested money into it, you've got a
1: budget. What informed my writing more than anything is the fact that the through line for me as a writer, what's the theme? I think of the story as though I'm the district attorney telling a story through his witnesses, and I want them to come away thinking the guy's guilty. Now, the defense attorney's telling a different story through his witnesses, and whoever stuck to the theme and told the most convincing story won the case. Well, if my theme is that the love of money leads to catastrophe? Let's just say that's my theme. Mm-hmm. Then I know what has to be happening if I'm going to prove my point. And if I get on a location and I wanted a restaurant, but the restaurant's closed, but there's a, an open excavation down the road, I can go shoot in the excavation and write a scene that conveys the same theme point that I would have wanted in the restaurant so the scene is only the scene if it conveys what you need for the advancement
0: of your theme
1: mm-hmm. I would say to somebody what's your story about well oh, it's about a guy who's in jail and he breaks out of jail and they rob a bank and I said no that's that's not what it's about that's the plot tell me what it's about they mm-hmm. go well it's about a guy so- who's in Kristen, and he breaks, no. <laughs> Tell me more about, what point are you trying to prove?
0: The idea being, in a story, we want to be able to speak something about the human condition. We want to be able to touch on themes that uh, people can relate to. And it's not, as you said, what the plot is. The plot can be whatever you want it to be. But there's an underlying theme that runs through that you want to put across and raise questions or try to maybe bring an answer or so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, and if he's trying to say, for example, what I'm trying to say is absolute trust in the authorities can be a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. So then you know you have to have a guy who has absolute trust in the authorities, and we have to see how that trust is betrayed several times, and he doesn't survive it. Or he does survive it once he's overcome that trust and has learned to realize That there's good and evil in this world, and maybe what he's been trusting hasn't been the good.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. So
1: so that's what the movie would be about. Not that he was in jail and he broke out. Exactly.
0: One more name and just a quick statement or two if you want to, and that's Point of Departure.
1: Long story short, that was a vacation. Okay. It's a vacation in the sense that I shot it in Paris during the Cannes Film Festival. Monaco, Milan, Italy, and Venice, Italy.
0: Okay.
1: It was inspired by Antonioni's movie, L'Aventura, where a woman disappears and her friends spend the rest of the movie looking for her. My movie is a woman who is supposed to meet the man in her life, maybe it's her husband or lover, and he doesn't appear. And she spends the rest of the movie tracing back where they've been together to see if he has chosen any of those locations as a fallback. It's very enigmatic. It's very, how should I say, interpretive Mm -hmm. as to what's going on. The thing that Noah Cross said to Mr. Gitz, you may think you know what's going on, but believe me, you don't. (laughs) Applies in full measure.
0: But hey, if that's the way you want to spend a vacation, that's a heck of a way to do it. And those locales and being able to make a film, that sounds fascinating.
1: Well, yeah. And it, and the uh, film I just made, Exigence, reiterates the same question that came up in that movie, which is, to whom do you report a crime when it's the authorities who've committed it?
0: Mm. So while you are being so prolific in film work, you also began writing, directing, producing works for television. And that began with your series interview, correct?
1: Yes, I I came up with an idea to market stories to Hollywood because nobody buys stories. They may buy a script, especially if it's from somebody they know or if it's somebody that has a successful track record, but nobody in their right mind buys a story. But I wanted them to buy my stories. Uh So I thought, okay, what is this public, this group of producers and directors have their attention on, well, they all wanted to buy the rights to books that they could adapt for movies. So what I did is I created a TV show of fictional interviews, where I'd take an actress or an actor, and one of the very early ones was uh, Stevie Williams, played by Jamie Randall, and and I created a character for her to play. She played uh, Stevie Williams, who helped the New York Police Department's manhunt for James Earl Williams, or James Earl, I can't even remember his name now, uh, was the perfume killer and who was going around New York killing these prostitutes. And she became a decoy and actually fell in love with the lead detective on the case. I knew I had to have a different look, so I stayed off camera. All three cameras were trained on Jamie and close-up, medium, actually tight close-up, medium close-up, which is head and shoulders, and a medium, which is to the waist. And you only hear my voice off camera. And we treat it as though it's real.
0: You would always open it by saying, what
1: line? Steve Williams, you've written a book. All Yours gives us a close-up view of the Streetwalkers uh, and elaborates on your uh, cooperation with the New York Police Department's manhunt for James Well Campbell, the perfume killer. What led you to the life of a streetwalker? And then I gave her her first line, which was, at the age of nine, I realized my parents were a couple of saps, and I was always six steps ahead of them. So at a very early age, I came to New York. Again, completely not what somebody would say. This is completely unexpected. Yeah. And we put that on there. I got thirty calls on my answering machine by the next morning. It aired on cable at eleven or eleven thirty at night. The next morning, before I could even take the calls off, I get a call from a producer, and he says, "I want to buy the rights to the book I saw on your show last night." And I said, (laughs) "His name was David Permit. I said, "Well, David, that wasn't a there is no book. That was a fictional interview," and he says, "Well." That that's, it's a great story. How much do you want for it? Well, I hadn't thought that far ahead. Yeah. So I said, "Well, make me an offer." He said, "Would you consider fifty thousand dollars?" And of course, I'd have considered five (laughs) hundred dollars. (laughs) Right. So I said, "Yeah, I think yeah, I think we can yeah, sure." So we met. (laughs) We followed up and. Our relationship grew from there, and he got me my first look deal with Tristar Pictures. And uh, we had other, th- other other things we did. In fact, he once came up with a story and asked me to do it. And the guy I did it with, who played the author, was Paul Peterson. who oh. was on one of those um, 50s, 60s TV shows. Was it Donna Reed? I forget which one it was. Okay. So uh, that's how that started. And I knew right away I wanted to target producers and directors of A-list people. That all I got was in that. Because he said uh, at that time, he had two movies coming out. One was Dragnet. You said Dragnet,
0: right?
1: Dragnet, yes. Yeah. Tom Hanks and, and uh, Dan Aykroyd. And the other was uh, Blind Date with Kim Bassinger and Bruce uh, Willis. Mm-hmm. So I hit my target. My intended target was A-list producers and directors. After that, I started getting calls from everybody from Marlon Brando to the most extraordinary people that, that you could imagine. All Oscar, Emmy, Peabody Award winners. And it uh, one guy calls up and says, I saw this interview on TV last night. It was very extraordinary. I'm kind of interested in uh, the show. So I told him what it was. And he said, that's the most innovative show I've ever seen on TV. He says, I'm interested in the actress. And I said, well, in what way? He said, well, I'm a director. And I said, have you done anything I'd know? He says, well, flash dance. Now, this was 1985. Mm-hmm. So this goes back a ways. He's yeah. done other movies since then. <laughs> but, <laughs> You know, you're talking to a guy that did Flashdown, well, that's nice. And suddenly, these people are fans of mine. It was the most amazing experience. I did 500 half hours.
0: I was going to ask that, yeah, yeah. You
1: 1985 did. till I think the last one I did was somewhere around 2001. And then after that, I did a half dozen of them in French just for the fun of it.
0: I was going to bring that up, but you just handled it for me. So you did it also in a French language version. Yes. Um, just so there's absolutely no confusion for anybody hearing. So the show is very basically simple. You're off camera. There's three cameras at different um, angles and, and different closeness on one actor. And this is an improvised show. You have given them the idea beforehand what the story is about, what their character is about. I touched on a few of the things you're going to go into. But it was improvised between you and this actor and you would ask the questions and the fictional element is that they have supposedly written a book about some amazing experience and then you're interviewing about that book and you guys would just improvise it and till you wrapped it up
1: that's right i would signpost it i'd give them like four or five points i wanted them to remember story points everything other than that was elements i'd say what did you do in our, in our pre-taping, I'd say, what what have you done outside of acting as a living? And I'd say, oh, well, one guy who fly Cessnas from the manufacturer out to the, the buyer's home airport, more or less. And because all of the avionics were put in aftermarket, he'd have to do dead reckoning so he's navigating by the stars to get, I thought that was a fa- that there's a story there somewhere that I never used. Yeah. But that's kind of an interesting thing. But I if if he had a southern accent or if he had a New York accent, that heavily influenced where I situated my character and the kind of story I put them in. Stevie Williams had a great New York voice and she had a husky whiskey voice. So
0: what we're looking at is, you, once again, we're dealing with the actors in your repertory company, Cineparis. You knew who they were, but then you would ask them something about their private life, their personal life, find out some things, and then you would create a story, and that would become the fictional book, and you would interview them about that book, and therefore, they're talking about things they would know about.
1: Yes, but I'll give you an example where I, that wasn't the case. Uh, the Herald Examiner came out and did an interview about me on the show. Mm-hmm. The fellow who did the interview was a, their hatchet man, David Gritton, an Englishman who was very soft-spoken, and he came out and did an interview with me. We were there for an hour or so, and I couldn't tell if he loved it or hated it or what he thought. No clue. Uh-huh. The only thing I knew about David is I would read an article he did on a particular actress, and he took a hatchet to her and killed her five times over. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if he did this to her, what's he going to do to me? <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, Lord, do I tell anybody that I, that he's doing an article or I just keep it to myself? Well, he calls and says, uh, you're going to be in the Sunday edition. So I went off and I bought every edition of the Herald Examiner that Sunday that I could find. I was on the cover with. Uh, Bertolucci getting his Academy Award for The Last Emperor, the Getty Museum uh, opening up, and me. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't have written more glowingly about the show if I'd written it myself. I wouldn't have dared. <laughs> so I called him and I said, David, how would you like to do an episode? He said, I loved to." So he comes to the studio and I sit and talk to him. And I give him, again, four or five story elements, but the rest is whatever he wants to say. Yeah. And we did it. <laughs> and uh, I took him a VHS copy of it uh, after it was done, dropped it off at his, uh, at his apartment. A day or so later, I get a call from him, and he says, I can't believe this. I've watched this several times, and I can't tell where I leave off and your story begins. <laughs> it's It's so true. It's so real. Yeah. And people would call up and say, was that a true story? And I'd say it's as true as anything you'll see on the six o'clock news.
0: (laughs) Well, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes, even when it was someone I knew very little about, sitting and talking with them, getting their speech patterns, getting their vibe, getting a sense of what inference do I draw from this person and what words can I put in their mouth? is the only way to go because the result is whether you've got a great actor in front of you or not, it's going to look like you have a great actor on yeah. the screen. Yeah.
0: Now, well, last thing I want to bring up about interview, if I remember this correctly, you were talking about interview, you had a very uh, humorous situation once where an episode had aired and the next day, whenever it was, the phone rang and there was somebody and I seem to remember you telling, me, telling us that you had somebody that was just going on and on about how much they loved this episode of this show they saw, and then your other line was ringing and you put them on hold and it was somebody else that wanted to talk about the same episode and they were going on about how much they hated it and
1: you went back and forth between the two. You're quite right, it wasn't an interview. It was something we called discussions. Ah. And the guy who called up first couldn't say enough nice things about it. He says, I generally don't call on stuff I see, but I I couldn't not call. I'm an op- I'm a professional opera singer. I won't say who it was, but I just loved it and it was remarkable. And I, this is what TV should be. And I get the call waiting, and I said, "Could you hold on a minute?" Sure. Who I don't know who this is, but that was the biggest piece of junk, and you're wasting people's time and blah 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 blah. I, I want to talk to you more. Could you hold on a minute? I go back to the first guy, and he's going, "Yeah, that was it was wonderful. I'd love to get a copy of it and this, that, and the other." Go back to, the, "Yeah, you guys, I'm gonna report you and then get take you off the air." <laughs> the same piece now we go back to what i learned at buddha records if they love it or hate it you've got a hit.
0: yeah there you are there you're tying it back to that because that's that's a good story or just stories can have such an impact on people one way or the other and it's that's a perfect example of it
1: i'll leave you with one little anecdote i was in arts deli on in studio city delis tend to be noisy especially at lunchtime yeah and i'm in there talking and uh having lunch with someone. And the guy across from me says, "Uh, you're a director, aren't you? And I said, yes. Aren't you that director that does that TV show with the authors? And I said, yes, I am. Ah, great. Love the show. Okay, so now I'm thinking about it. How do you recognize me? I'm not on camera. Right. So I said, how did you, I'm not on camera. How'd you recognize me? It was your voice. In a loud lunchtime deli, he recognized my voice. Now, today, I am my Voice has been attacking me. I I don't know how I sound, but I've had trouble, uh, you know, I had the world's worst head cold for a week and my voice hasn't recuperated. But talk about branding. When your voice is recognizable in a crowded deli at lunchtime, (laughs) Yeah, it (laughs) is not a branded voice.
0: You have a distinctive voice and um, it does. It stands out. Well, that's interview. Next came another innovative program, Confessions.
1: Confessions was something I was going to pitch as a nighttime soap opera. And then I thought, wait a minute, why don't we experiment here and try to go directly to the end user? And so we used the rep company actors and shot in the studio, the confessional booths. And the the film visually had three elements. flashbacks, which were full screen, the split screen, which was in the booth with the penitent talking and over their shoulder, we saw elements of the flashback, what they're talking about. So they could be talking about how he loves his wife, but in the background, we see him with his lover, his mistress. So we saw the irony of, of you know, what was going on, what was being said, and what was true and was wasn't true. And so we shot a lot of the locations up in Santa Barbara because of I like the architecture. Uh, the interiors we shot generally in Los Angeles. And, and just to
0: clarify, this is con- uh, people confessing in a booth to a priest.
1: Correct, yes, I'm sorry. And we shot that and we created a website even though there was no streaming video back in the day. Mm-hmm. It was an early version of Netflix where if you liked it, you could subscribe to videotapes or buy the videotape episodes. So what we would show on the website was photos and a wave file, a sound file, where you'd hear part of the confession. And then as a, hopefully to act as a daily magnet, I created the Daily Breeze, which was like the local newspaper in the community of Briarwood which you know was Santa Barbara for all intents and purposes. And uh, you could go and see the headlines change, and there would be stories about various characters, like one character was, one affluent character was caught um, stealing jewelry. You know, she was a klepto, and someone else was doing this or that or the other thing. But the whole season one revolved around the killing of an undercover police officer And practically everybody in the story, every penitent, even the priest had possible motive and was therefore suspect in his murder.
0: So to make sure people didn't miss it earlier, this is a nighttime soap. And it being a soap, that means it's a serial. So these are ongoing storylines that unfold through the various characters. We find out who they are and what they're up to, how they're confessing to the priest, but they're not necessarily telling the truth, in some cases, or in most cases. Uh, it's it's a fascinating um, uh, way to put across this story.
1: Well, we had nothing but fun with it, and I, I, I learned early on, especially with TV, because in a film, to a degree, you have a captive audience in the theater, or to some degree in their home, they've committed to watching the, the movie, unless it's just so awful, or it's not their cup of tea. It's easy to Switch channels, so I came up with what I was a visual arrest. The visual arrest means as they're turning around, switching channels, they see something that makes them stop and figure out what it is. The visual arrest in interview was the extreme close-up, because they want to wait around until they see who the other guy talking is. By the time they realize they're not going to see me, hopefully we've hooked them with what we've been saying. Right. By survey, that's exactly what happened. We did another. Thing called diary 0049 which was futuristic it was political future political sci-fi i guess where every citizen had to go into a video booth like a phone booth on the corner but more private and talk to the computer about what they did that day and the computer would ask them questions
0: this is under like a dystopian sort of 1984 world
1: that's right the yeah. visual arrest was a thin blue line that went across the bottom of the screen that would turn red when the person is obviously lying or even sometimes when it wasn't so obvious and we'd wonder what are they uncomfortable about what are they lying so that's a nice visual arrest on confessions the visual arrest was the split screen with the penitent talking and seeing the truth playing out over his or her shoulder
0: yeah that irony that's just i love that kind of thing where you're saying what they're saying and then you realize what they're really about it's that's just great You moved on to do two comedy shows after that, Clip Joint and the Jerry Fairfax show. So what uh, prompted you to decide to go towards comedy for a while?
1: Clip Joint was inspired by uh, Larry Sanders' show. I was a big fan of Larry Sanders, Gary Shanling, everybody on the show. And that was our version of that. For for nine years, I was a cable ace judge, judging... uh, best comedy directing. You became a judge at one time, did you not?
0: Uh, one year I got to do that, yeah.
1: Then they folded into the Emmys. Uh, so that was my way of having fun. And and I, I really enjoyed clip drawing, but it was a lot of work because as you know, I'd start in one part of the studio and set up a conversation, and then I'd go to another part. Someone would walk by, we'd follow them to another part. There'd be another conversation.
0: Well, I got to be the one to screw that up once. <laughs> Since I was also in your uh, in the group, I was also an actor, and you had me in there playing a role. And this scene was going to start on one end of the studio, go through all these different uh, people's little scenes and elements and conversations and work its way towards me, where I would then end up kissing um, a fellow actor, Kathy Carey. And that was the sort of punchline of the whole thing. And I was a little nervous about that, admittedly. <laughs> And you finally got to, to us, and I. there was a pause there on my part, and we had to shoot the whole thing again. So that was kind of mortifying for me, but, um, yeah, that, it was a complicated thing. I have
1: to say, you weren't the only one. <laughs> Thank goodness. It, it happened. You know, it happens. Yeah. And I, I, I made my bet. I wanted these long takes, so I had to live with them. And that's fine, because in the end, the only thing the audience sees is the one that went right. So it doesn't matter what we went through to get it. It only matters, was it worth getting that long take? Did it pay off with the audience? And I think uh, for the most part, they did. Yeah. Jerry Fairfax came basically as a vehicle for our good friend, Michael Chancellor. Mm-hmm. Michael has done a lot of work with me. He's he's done uh, full scores. He, he scored uh, my documentary, Carrera Panamericana. He, he did the music for Clip Joint, obviously, for the Jerry Fairfax show. Uh, Point of Departure was his music. And he's an exceptional musician and composer, but he's also the funniest guy in the world. Yeah. And after I was watching uh, some of the early Thin Man shows, uh, movies, I got him on the phone one day and I said, am I dreaming or do I see a lot of William Powell in Jerry Fairfax? He says, "No, you're not dreaming. It's I, I have a lot of affinity and proximity to that character, mm-hmm. and and it's evident once you see it. But he he played a great showbiz never waser, a guy that never made it, and is trying for a comeback. And he <laughs> he had exactly the right tone, the right degree of oblivion, and all I had to do was surround him by people that were all." In it for themselves. Yes. And he handled them with a plum. He was magnificent. We did, interestingly enough, I think, I'm. if I'm wrong, it's only by an episode or two, but I think we did 186 half hour shows.
0: Just to clarify then, in, in very simple terms so for each of these shows, ClipJoin and Jerry Fairfax, the basic premise again is.
1: Well, Clip Joint is a show within a show. Duke Malton, that's his real name, and he's Leonard Malton's cousin, uh, had a movie review show that he didn't care a thing about. But he had all these girls that were the Clip Joint girls that would do bits with him. And they'd show clips. And the, and the, the show was about the interaction between all the people involved with the show behind the scenes and what was going on with them. Which is where They're this good. sort of
0: Larry Sanders influence comes in. Exactly. Yeah, and then Jerry Fairfax again. He was a never, <laughs> never particularly successful singer, um, and has problems. And now he's trying to come back and give us the uh, the setting. I always thought the setting of this show was so funny.
1: The setting is the house of a rich lady in San Marino, where the old money in Los Angeles lives, who had a sweet spot for Jerry and she'd let him come shoot his show in her piano room. And so once a week, this motley crew of show business hangers-on would come in, overtake her living space, and he'd do his show, and we'd see the back of her head <laughs> right up behind, the, in front of the camera, watching him do his shtick because she was just smitten with Jerry.
0: It's basically an audience of one as the camera's right behind her. She's in the foreground. And by the way, this is the second show-like interview where your voice is heard, but you're never seen because you're the director in the show. That's right. Yeah. That's
1: right. And Jerry and I had, Jerry and I, Michael and I had a good understanding of how far to take things and where to push or to bring back. And uh, it was a pleasure working with him.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a great guy. Now, do you see much difference between drama and comedy when it comes to approaching each of them, say, from a writer's
1: perspective? None whatsoever. Okay, because because here's here's what, for example, my view is that they're the same. And if you play comedy straight, I think it's much funnier than if you're mugging about letting everybody know how funny you think it is. This is one reason why I cannot abide saturday night live because they're all signaling how funny they think they are Mm -hmm. and i don't think that's funny at all so for me and someone else can you know that that's arguable but for me that just doesn't work and for me what makes comedy comedy is the impact it has on the characters okay In fact, if you looked at old Buster Keaton movies, if you looked at old uh, Howard Lloyd, if you looked at any of the old, even uh, Laurel and Hardy, they're having some heavy-duty catastrophes that they're having to put up with just to get through what they're getting through.
0: So as a writer, uh, tell me about the relationship between the words you write, or in your case, dictate— and the performance of those words by the actors. I mean, how do you see that relationship? That, that fascinates me, and that's something I want to bring up later on in the show when actors come on to give me their impressions of that element, that relationship, looking back towards the writers and the written word. But how do you see that relationship between what you write or dictate and what they do with what you write or dictate?
1: Well, I think, first of all, you're going to get a skewed answer from me because I know going in who I'm writing for. I know that when I do exigence, Price James and Shane Lewis are the two guys sitting in the car. And I know how they think. So making them speak is easy. And never once have they said anything that I've written for them that wasn't exactly what I imagined it was going to be. It's like a painter painting a model that he has a lot of experience with. Uh-huh. Now, if I were writing a script, in, you know, how in the old studio days, they'd have the writers in the writer's building and the directors in the director's building and never the twain should meet. And, but they wouldn't know necessarily who was going to speak the line. And so when it was spoken, it might have been quite a shock. Yeah. I have never had that happen because even from Montmartre in, in Paris, I knew who was going to play all the characters. They were friends of mine. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you uh, a, a quick citation. Okay. I was listening to an interview with Orson Welles that was done back when TV was doing interviews in black and white. and Someone asked Orson, who had his own repertory company, the Mercury Theater Players, right? Mm-hmm. that he used for a number of his films. And the interviewer said, have you ever found that in giving a role to a friend, you ended up with a performance that wasn't as good as it could have been had you just gone for the best actor? He says, oh, yeah, of course. Hmm. I I have nothing to complain about. And what is life if not friends? Yeah. Yeah. which I thought was a very telling remark. I feel the same way. You know, the repertory company that I formed that lasted 20-plus years in Hollywood has been reborn in recent years. Uh, the actors are in the States, primarily on the East Coast, but there are a few on now on the West Coast. I'm in Ireland and making movies with them, and I'm ha- I have no complaints about anybody I've had in any of my movies. And I just got uh, a, an offer from a U.S. based distributor for both Exigence and uh, The Dearly Departed.
0: Yeah, let me let me really quickly bring that in. Um, so those are your latest film projects. You shot, uh, wrote, and shot, and coached actors through those uh, simultaneously, right? You were making both movies
1: at once. Well, I was making more than that, but yes, yeah, those were being made simultaneously on so different th- days, <coughs> on different days, of course. And
0: so those are your two latest films, Exigence and Dearly Departed. Um, You gave us an audio clip our audience heard at the beginning of this. That was for which film?
1: Exigence. And the character's in the back of an Uber. And we see, as he's writing, real quick cut to flashbacks of what he's been going through recently. And uh, it's his reflection.
0: Got it. So those are your latest projects, and as you were just starting to say, um, you've got some good news about those recently.
1: Yeah, a Distributor has offered uh, deals for both the movies, and we're going through them now, and um, seeing what all's entailed, and doing due diligence, and setting timelines. But you know, to make the movies the way we make them, and have that as a result, it doesn't get any better than that.
0: Yeah, I would think. Were those both shot in the same way?
1: Both were shot exactly the same way, and one was shot exclusively using iPhones. The other was shot with a combination of 4G and and iPhones.
0: What a great time we live in, that you can make movies that way, and here you've done it, and now you've already got somebody interested in distribution. That's just amazing to me.
1: Yeah, and as we speak, I have another film that we're going to do in four days, four separate days, because there are four different conversations that take place on the eve of an execution Mm. and so you can remember the discussions show well it's almost like four discussions intercut one with the other okay
0: and you're going to shoot it all in four days
1: each conversation will be shot on one day
0: right excellent
1: so it'll be four shooting days yes
0: now, since this is a podcast about storytelling, primarily fiction writing, I wanted to learn from you a bit about how you approach stories. I think you've done that extremely well so far. I was going to ask you about that, how you find story ideas. You've touched on that a bit, creating characters. Tell me at least uh, at least one thing, a little bit about dialogue, how you approach dialogue.
1: It comes from the brand. What can I put in this actor's mind and thoughts and speech that makes sense but are still unexpected? And... Um, will surprise. I was having a conversation with someone not too long ago about being a guest at a dinner party. And I just happened to offhandedly say, the function of a dinner guest isn't to come and enjoy the dinner. The function of a dinner guest is to come and entertain the other guests. Hmm. And that's your function as a screenwriter. (laughs) That's
0: a very interesting insight. Um, Last question about writing. Tell me about the importance of proper three-act structure in feature films.
1: Um, It's vital in my estimation because without it, the movie's going nowhere. You've got people saying what people would say and doing what people would do, but it doesn't add up to anything. If you don't have rising action in the second act, the movie goes nowhere. I'll give you an example of a movie that your listeners can go look at and then tell me if I'm right or wrong. It's Spy Games, with with uh, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt back in the '90s. I think it was. Okay. The movie starts off, and in the in the opening scenes, they have the resolution. Hmm. <laughs> really, once you've resolved the picture, once you've resolved the protagonist, the movie is over. Get to the ending and get out. But they give us the resolution. In the opening sequence, and then they take us through as if we didn't know. Now it's okay to start with the ending and go through the movie. They did that with Lawrence of Arabia, arguably the best movie ever made. Sunset Boulevard. He starts off with a motorcycle accident, ends his life. Yeah. But that wasn't the resolution. When Alec Guinness's Faisal says Lawrence was a two-edged sword, and the British driver driving him to the airport says, "Going home, sir," and he says, "Home." Like, he doesn't know where home is, because it's never resolved. He never understood who he was or where he belonged. Yeah. So there, it worked perfectly. And then they went straight to the credits from there. But in Spy Games, they had to show us the whole damn movie. And I'm thinking, nothing means anything.
0: Do you feel that's the same thing with uh, Titanic, the way they opened that film?
1: You know what? I saw Titanic once. And like every other guy, I saw it just to see the guy fall on the propeller blade. Now,
0: uh, in order to have a bit of edginess to this podcast, maybe gain a reputation as subversive, perhaps a
1: bit. Uh, uh, you, mean, you mean we don't already? <laughs> I just trashed one of the, <laughs> the biggest grossing films. So.
0: Great, the biggest grossing. Um, but yeah. I want to put writers on the hot seat by challenging them on grammar or use of cliche phrases, et cetera, and so forth. So I'm going to throw out a couple of overly used phrases that are nearly always misused and see if you can define them and even use them properly in a sentence. Oh, How about know. per se?
1: As itself, I wouldn't even use it because it sounds it sounds affected mm-hmm. so i'd I'd stay away from it. Use plain English. That's my advice. It, you know I've been wrong before.
0: I think people use it thinking it just sort of means, for example, something 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 per se. Yeah, and it doesn't. but that's not what it means. How about begs the question?
1: Begs the question means you put forth an argument without foundation and your argumentative statement is the foundation. Okay. So I say, women are no damn good. Well, what's your foundation? Women are no damn good. <laughs> that's begging the question. Of course, yes. a lot of people think it means that it demands the question be asked. That's right. come in through ignorance and common usage, but that's not the first, shouldn't even be any, anywhere on the map. Right. But I'll tell you what bothers me, and I see this happening a lot in period pieces, is people are using phrases that didn't exist back then.
0: Oh, geez, that, how could that mistake happen? Unless they're trying to go for some artsy thing where they don't care. No, no.
1: Yeah. they just don't know. It's just ignorance. Yeah, it's
0: astonishing. Now, in my introduction of you at the beginning of this podcast, I used the phrase fiercely independent. Do you agree with that phrase about you?
1: Well, yes, but... It's not like it's an effort to be fiercely independent. It's just I made the decision that there was a certain way I wanted to approach what I do. Filmmaking is too beautiful a thing to do it some way that you don't like doing it. Yeah. And so I created the way I want to do it. I don't expect anyone to do it the same way. I'd be surprised if they did. But when they do, it's kind of interesting. And I've been offered to direct things I didn't write. I've always said no. Thank you very much. I've, I've been offered different ways of doing what I do. If you do it this way, I can. Thank you very much. So it's just a very calm and considered decision I made. So the word fiercely is something of a misnomer, but you could say persistent, persistently independent. Okay.
0: Well, I've always found it fascinating since I've known you. And now that we've learned about your life and what you've done in your artistic pursuits, uh, certainly independent has been made very clear. And uh, I th- hope that our audience has enjoyed it as much as I have. Now, do you have any, uh, any particular advice or wisdom you'd like to share for others when it comes to writing before we close?
1: Don't get too much in the box. The only box you need to be aware of is if it is a box, the box of the three-act structure. In terms of what your people are saying and what they're doing, do more rather than less. You can always tone it down later, but make it unlike what they've seen before. Hmm. Don't try to copy a movie you saw once because it's going to look like a copy of a movie you saw once.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Well, Stephen, I can't thank you enough for being my first guest and sharing your fascinating life and your uh, talent and your art with us. And I hope people will look into the works you've done and take an interest in it. And certainly, um, if they, if you just type Steven's name in, in Amazon, he has a handful of books, all of which are excellent. Which movie did you write your book about um, About how the, when you made your movie?
1: Uh, dead Right.
0: Dead Right. So you have a book talking about your experience making
1: that as an independent filmmaker. If you want to find out more about me, If you just put Stephen Mitchell, you're going to get a biblical scholar for the first 27 pages of Google result. But if you put in Stephen Mitchell Ferrari, I'm very well known because of my involvement with Ferraris. When I was 17, 18, 19, I had a Ferrari that's worth $70 million today. They only made 36 of them. That'll get you to my blog. And then you can see a cross between the Hollywood stuff and the Ferrari stuff if that's of any interest to you it gets you away from the biblical scholar and into this 'er ne'er-do-well that likes Hollywood. Okay.
0: So that's, that's a, a Google search. Right. Yeah. Excellent. And so, um, final thing, my producer Dan and I are both musicians and music obsessives. And as heard in the opening of this program, I chose a very specific music that means something to me and that I hope sets a tone for the show. So with that in mind, I want all of my guests, starting with yourself and on forward to share their love of music as well. So I'll be having each of them choose any music they wish to close the show, whether it's a particular song or anything that uh, you might have Dan or me choose from a particular artist or group, or if preferred, simply an example of any style of music. So you have the honor of being the first to choose.
1: Well, thank you. The piece that I would choose is the theme from Exigence. The exact title is March of Two. One of the two stars is Price James and his son, whose musician name is Blue, B-L-U, composed and performed March of Two, and it was perfectly suited to the tone and action of Exigence, and that's the one I've chosen.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for that, and we um, can't thank you enough for being on this program. that You got me through this. Like I said, I was a little nervous during my first interview, but um, it went very well, and I... Really appreciate you being willing to do that.
1: It's been my pleasure. You did a great job, Kevin. Thank you to both of you and Daniel. Well, thanks to everybody for listening.
0: Please tune into our next program where my guest will be a friend of both Stephen and mine, writer, director, actor, producer, Kathy Carey. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Long Stories Short with Kevin Courtright. If you'd like to send Kevin your thoughts, comments, or suggestions, he can be reached at lsswithkc at gmail.com. Once again, that email address is lsswithkc at gmail.com. We also invite you to join our podcast Facebook group where you can share your feedback. Thanks again for listening and, long story short, we look forward to having you join us again next time.